My voice is starting to get funny, so bear, bear with me today. We could be on for an adventure. Um, well, last time I was up here, I talked a little bit how I've fallen in love with the lectionary. And I am preaching out of the lectionary again this week. Um, one of the texts that was for today is um, in Romans 8. And for those of you who've been around the church for a while, Romans 8 is one of those core passages that is written by Paul. And it's a letter to the church at Rome, and it kind of helps us understand what it means to be followers of Jesus in a bigger way. Um, And I think we should just dive in instead of me talking about it. So, okay. So the, the passage is Romans 8. 12 to 25, and I made it really big so everyone will be able to read it today. Um, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul said a whole lot of stuff in there. And my hope today is that I'll be able to we'll be able to walk through this section by section and kind of get a bigger picture of what he's trying to say. So the first section I entitled, The Spirit Wins! Yay! Um, so what we see here essentially is that we have an obligation. And I was like an obligation. Why are we calling it that? Um, But our obligation is not to be bound by this body that we live in that compels us to do the things that are not what God wants us to do. And Paul likes to talk about that as the flesh. That's the phrase that he'll keep using over and over um, in this text and in other letters. Um, And because if we live according to that flesh, we're going to die. Like, if we live the way that we want to live, it leads to death. 
But the amazing and beautiful thing is that we've been given the Holy Spirit. When we receive Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and that is the way that we can move beyond this flesh and move beyond living in death, essentially. Um, And so some points. That battling the flesh is a reality for everybody, and I know that some of us, we might be like, okay, but these people are so holy. They're so good. They pray all the time. They do all these amazing things for Jesus. But the reality is they battle that flesh and that instinct to do the things that cause us to die every day. All of us do. We are in this together. And so if you, you know, see a TV preacher or somebody you listen to online and you're like, this person is amazing and they have so much wonderful stuff to say, yeah, they do, but they still battle their own demons every day. And everybody's stuff looks different, but there's still that pull all the time. And unless we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're never able to overcome it. So that word that I highlighted was obligation. And so it says, well, it's not our obligation to live by the flesh. Like, we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to choose that. But what we have to choose is living by the Spirit. We have to choose Jesus. We have to choose his way of freedom. And so it's, it's a putting on a different kind of mindset. Um, and it's important to remember we really can't do that alone. You can't just hang out by yourself and and work on your spiritual disciplines alone and think that you're really going to be able to defeat your flesh without the power of having community around you to support you. Because we each, like I said, have different things that trip us up. We have different parts of our flesh that cause us more challenge than others. And so I think being in community with one another, we're able to have conversations with people that struggle with similar things and people that struggle with different things, and we can encourage each other. So that helps us activate the power of the Spirit in us each and every day. So the next section is verses 14 to 17, and it's talking about how we're no longer slaves anymore. Because we are slaves to our flesh if we choose to live that way. We are forced to fall in with what we want to do. And it just and it just brings you guilt. It brings you dissatisfaction. And it causes decay physically. I mean, a lot of the choices that we can make that are in our flesh cause us pain and physical problems and emotional problems and relationship problems. So again, God's like, no way. I've given you the spirit because of what I've done through Jesus. You don't have to choose to be a slave anymore. And so you're not exchanging one master for another. We're not saying, okay, so you're not a slave to your flesh anymore. Your master isn't your flesh. But your master's not really God anymore. We're not slaves to God. We're actually sons and daughters of God. And in the culture of Rome, I mean, that was a huge change. You'd either be, you wouldn't be necessarily redeemed to complete freedom because you were always under the charge of Rome. Even if you were a Roman citizen, you were still under someone else's authority to where you had to do what they had, what they told you to do. Um, 
But Paul's turning all of that culture on his head. He's saying, you know what? You don't have to follow through with all of these things that are dragging you down. You don't have to feel like you have to grovel because Jesus has redeemed you. You don't have to do all these good works in order to to prove your worth now that Christ has rescued you. It's not about that anymore. It's not that system. That system doesn't exist for us anymore. Um, So like I said, you don't go from one master to another. And you don't have to grovel or do good works or pay dues to win God's favor. And this is a tricky one because I think we can say intellectually, yeah, I believe that grace is free and it's given to us without kind of any strings attached. But we live in an economic society where it's tit for tat. You know, somebody does you a favor, you do one back because you feel compelled to do that. Um, Jesus did more than just do us a favor. He rescued us from darkness and death and eternal separation from God. But we don't have to grovel. We don't have to come to him like we owe him something. He's made us co-heirs with Jesus. And that's where this this passage gets kind of intense. (laughs) It's like, what? We're like Jesus's brother or sister? That kind of blows your mind away. Because I don't think most of us think about ourselves as, as being on the same level as Jesus. But because of what Christ has done, it's elevated us to that level. Because God has adopted us fully into his family. <clears throat> and so in Rome, this image of adoption was a very powerful one. Um, one of the commentaries I was reading uh, this week was talking about how um, Nero was do- adopted into another Roman emperor's family in order for him to succeed to become the next emperor. And he actually wanted to marry the daughter of the sitting emperor um, that wanted him to succeed him. And so they had to pass, the Roman Senate had to pass a law in order for him to be able to marry her because the law saw them as siblings. Even though they weren't blood relations, anything like that, the law was so strong in Rome about adoption as it's like you are absolutely brothers and sisters when you are adopted into a family. Um, And so when Paul uses this adoption metaphor, it was very powerful language for the people that received this letter. It's like, you are absolutely the son or daughter of God. You are absolutely the brother or sister of Jesus in this relationship that God has created through Christ for us. Um, One of the things that they do when, when adoption happens in Rome is that there's seven witnesses Um, That's a a lot of witnesses. (laughs) So there can be no doubt that this adoption actually took place. So there's never any kind of craziness when it comes to the inheritance in the future because there's seven people that can testify, yes, this adoption took place. Um, And in this scripture passage, the Holy Spirit is our witness. So God doesn't need seven witnesses. We have part of the Trinity as our witness for our adoption into, into Jesus's family. So, I mean, Paul is making it very clear that there is no confusion about who we are in Christ once we have received him. So this is, this is powerful. Like Jesus is not letting us go anywhere. 
We are in the family. We are his sibling. So, but there's always, when you're in a family, there's ups and downs. We all know that. There's good times, there's the bad times. And we go through those things together. And as we are a part of Jesus' family and we are co-heirs, we are heirs to the suffering of Jesus and we're heirs to the glory, to the joy and the beauty and the resurrection and the redemption. We have all that good stuff too, but we also have the suffering and difficulty that Jesus walked through. We experience those things too. And it can look different for everyone. I, I think we forget about suffering for Jesus in our culture because it's we don't have to if we choose not to. Um, but I think in small ways, when we, when we stand up for truth, there's suffering. Um, and I think especially about people that are standing up for justice in our country in the past and currently, there, there's a lot of persecution that happens for those folks. Um, just thinking in particular about Martin Luther King, what, one of the reasons why he was standing up for justice for African Americans was because he is like, we are people. We are God's creation. We ought to be considered as full human beings and not separated from others because their skin color is different. And he was persecuted for that. He lost his life. And that happened here. I know that was like 40 years ago. But still things like that happen today. And I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that clear persecution for being followers of Jesus couldn't happen here. I mean, but one of the interesting things is what happens to those churches that are persecuted is that they become more um, solid in their faith. They become more faithful. And so persecution actually kinds of, kind of weeds out the people that are only believing because it's convenient and it allows us to see the people that are really believing because they really believe in Jesus and the way of Jesus. So what's amazing about this co-heir stuff, even though we have to deal with the suffering as well as the glory of God, is that we're permanently connected to Christ through the Spirit. Like, there is that. It's always there because we are God's children. God's not going to disown us. I think that's a really powerful statement. We're going to be in the family. So the next section, Paul addresses suffering a little bit more. And I wrote suffering question mark because this is where I had a bit of a revelation when I was reading the text. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So that means that our suffering is really small. And I think that's hard for us to see because our suffering is right in front of us. Those difficulties that we walk through are the things that are right there, and that's what we think about more more often than not. But there's this greater glory. There's this incredible beauty that we already have in Christ. But the problem is, we don't see that incredible beauty every single day. We're stuck. We're stuck with knowing that it's there and that it's coming. 
but it's not here right now. And that's the stuff that breaks your heart. Because even if we, even if we are not personally suffering, I think if we take the time to engage with other people that may be walking through difficulty, we get mad. We get frustrated for the fact that we know that God wants more than what we experience every day. So I think one of the things that we suffer from more than persecution or anything else is the suffering from knowing that the world is broken and it's not yet been redeemed. And that brokenness doesn't just include us as humanity. The brokenness is everything that's been created. <clears throat> it's the weather. <laughs> it's earthquakes. It's animals that attack each other and attack people and kill them. It's like all of that stuff is broken. That's not the way that God created the world to be. Sorry. But one thing that that does is that it helps us to look to the future. It helps us to say, you know what? Even though we have this time where we're living in an age of incompleteness, that God has not come to redeem us fully yet. We have a taste of that redemption in the way that the Spirit ministers to us every day and allows us to be in relationship with God in a way that we couldn't on our own. Um, But we still see that brokenness all around us, all the time. Um, And we have to remember that creation itself does suffer due to the sin of humanity, and that the Adam and Eve sin caused that to happen too. And if we go back and read the creation accounts and in the fall and in Genesis two and three, you know, you, you see that, that there's, they were forced to till the ground in order to be able to have food. Like there, there's all of that stuff that has to go on now that wasn't the way that God created it. And so, like I said, that, that bigger suffering that we have and where, when we have our eyes opened by Jesus is that this isn't it. We suffer because we know that this is not the way that God wants the world to be. But what that should do is not com- not give us despair or drive us to that depression. What it should do is drive us to a place where we seek to be people that help to redeem our creation in whatever way God provides for us to do it. Okay, so this last part I entitled Pregnant with Hope. 
because um, this is a this is the message translation of um, this last bit of verses. And the first time I read it, I, I was like, "Oh, Eugene Peterson is the man." Um, I just love the picture that's here. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us. It's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. And even though I've not given birth, I've been around a lot of pregnant people lately. Um, actually, my brother and his wife just had a baby, like, two weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> and just thinking about the pain and the beauty in pregnancy, I mean, it is not an easy thing to give birth, as many of the women in this room can attest to. Um, but there's, there's beauty and there's excitement and there's expectancy and joy even in that pain. And so now as we are in this expectant place where we're expecting the kingdom of God to come and we're waiting and we're feeling the pain and the groaning of the changes that occur around us and just knowing as we get closer and closer to God's return and his reconciliation of all things, that it hurts more because we're yearning more for that to come. It made me think so much about um, the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, where it's where the writer of Hebrews is listing off all of these people that have done incredible things for the kingdom of God, be it Abraham and David and Moses, and the list will go on and on and on. <clears throat> but one of the things that's said towards the middle of the passage is about how they were never able to see their hope realized. But yet, they still walked and they were still faithful in the middle of all of that suffering and difficulty and having to stand up against, for many of them, a culture that told them that they were crazy. And so I think that's just a beauty for us. It's a, a way for us to say, we have forebears that walked through this. And so even now, in our suffering, in our difficulty, in our recognition that the world is broken and it's not the way that God wants, us, wants it to be, we can still say, I'm moving forward. So our hope does not have to die and turn into despair. Our hope lies in the fact that Jesus has promised us that he is coming. He will make it new. And that theme is over and over and over again all through the scriptures. God will make it new. God will make it new. This will not stay broken. We will not stay broken. Creation will not stay broken. Because God is calling us all to himself. And so 
it just makes me excited when we're pregnant with hope. We're ready. We're ready for God to come. We have to see it. We have to have that expectation coming inside of us. We have to not get bogged down in how broken life is every day. Or we can't get so cynical that we don't even think about it anymore. Because I think we're there too. It's like we don't trust that God's going to do anything because we don't see anything happening unless we start looking for it. So I have some questions. Do you weep over the brokenness of creation and of your own flesh? Do you notice that? Or are you so cynical you're not even noticing it? Can you envision the kingdom of God coming near when all is made new? Do you see do you see that? Do you taste it a little bit? <clears throat> do you hear God speaking to us in that? I think that this expectation does just rise up in all of us that know that there can be a better world. And that turns us to action. That doesn't keep us just sitting back and waiting for God to show up, twiddling our thumbs. Because like the folks in Hebrews 11, they were called to action. And we're called to action. To move forward, to spread the truth of that hope to all the world. And so that anticipation... Turning into action is the thing that keeps that hope from becoming despair. We don't get stuck when we're a part of doing God's work in the world. And we see and we pray and we continue to remain in community with one another so that we don't get so bogged down in the difficulties and the not yet part of the equation. I think that TLR has a pregnant hope. (laughs) Um, we've been working for two months or something (laughs) like that on, uh, figuring out where we're heading as a church. Um, what, what are we about? Oh, how do we want to be a part of healing in this broken world? Um, and so this is a mission statement that is a part of the bigger picture that we've been talking about on Thursday nights. We're not entirely done because we're working on, you know, the parts over here. These little, ooh, ooh, laser pointer. Um, these parts, we're fleshing those out to have, like, action steps to them, and that's the piece that's really not quite done yet. So this is, this is what describes us. TLR is a simple, volunteer-led community of messy, flawed followers of Jesus. Our desire is to walk alongside downtown Columbus while seeking, learning, and growing in Christ. And I think that's a pretty good way of describing us. And after we've dealt through many iterations of this, I think that's as close as we're probably going to (laughs) get. We are very messy um, in more ways than one. And so our hope is to accomplish it by knowing one another deeply teaching the stripped-down essentials of faith, and embodying these convictions by loving others. And these are the ways that we as a community are wanting to be a part of that reconciliation of, of the world. We want to be able to show the world that there is hope, that we don't have to stay broken, and that God is coming. And he is coming inside of us and through us now, but then the big reconciliation will come.
someday. So just wanted to give you a little taste of, of where we're going as a church, and when we have more, we'll give you the rest. <laughs> but um, I wanted us to just pray aloud together um, this prayer that I found in um, this common prayer book that I love, and I'll use a little bit in a minute too. Um, so let's just pray this together. Lord God, help us live out your gospel in the world. We pray for those who do not know your love, that they would be wooed by your goodness and seduced by your beauty. Form us into a family that runs deeper than biology or nationality or ethnicity, a family that is born again in you. May we be creators of holy mischief and agitators of comfort, people who do not accept the world as it is, but insist on its becoming what you want it to be. Let us groan as in the pains of childbirth, for your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Help us be midwives of that kingdom. Amen. The last thing I thought we should do today is to celebrate um, the Lord's table. We haven't done that in a long time. And I think it's an essential part of celebrating um, what God has done for us through the blood of Jesus. And doing that all together bonds us together as a community. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. It is the table of sharing with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. So come to this table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often, and you who have not been for a long time. You who have tried to follow Jesus, and you who have failed. Come. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. And let's pray this all together. Loving God, through your goodness, we have this bread and juice to offer which has come forth from the earth and human hands have made. May we know your presence in the sharing so that we may know your touch and presence in all things. We celebrate the life that Jesus has shared among his community through the centuries and shares with us now. Made one in Christ and one with each other, we offer these gifts with them ourselves a single living act of praise. Amen. So as you're ready, just come forward, and Eric will have the bread, and I will have the cup.